Hi everyone, welcome to week six of Primary Healthcare Development's Pre-Roach Pharmacy podcast. I'm still Sana and I hope you're still excited because the topics for this episode were chosen by you. I'm going to be a bit honest, I've been nervous about this episode because the two topics at one were over-the-counter knowledge and the MEP, which are quite broad. This is not going to be a revision guide in a 20-minute episode because the reason for this podcast is twofold. One, to help you pass the pre-reg exam, and two, to help you develop into an independent, skilled pharmacist. I struggled loads with OTC knowledge myself when I was a pre-reg, until I understood the best ways to learn. So I'll give you my best tips at nailing this area of the GPHC framework, and then we'll talk about how to navigate the MP and making it a best mate. Then the coolest bit, I'll address all the questions you've asked me throughout the last couple of weeks, Thank you so much to all of you who did. If you're someone who had questions and you feel like you're missing out, please don't worry. Feel free to reach out via our Telegram group. I'll put the link in the description. And there'll be more student choice episodes further down the line. Never fear. So then, let's start with over-the-counter knowledge. My first piece of advice is to remember this, the OTC knowledge you learn whilst revising for your pre-reg exam is not just for the exam. Remember, you have to actually go out and be a pharmacist after this year is over, so you're going to need to know all the red flags, you're going to need to know the doses for the basic stuff like paracetamol, ibuprofen, licensing for most of them. You're going to also be the fountain of all knowledge for your students, pre-reg pharmacists, techs, dispensers and the public, so please apply all your knowledge to practice. Something a lot of you have approached me with is the licensing ages for OTC preparations. For obvious reasons, we're not going to reel off every single OTC preparation there ever was and their associated ages, but good news! You can find them all in Professor Paul Rutter's book, Community Pharmacy. I love this book. A new edition has just been published and I have mentioned it so many times before that if you haven't got it by now, I am shocked and appalled. Please purchase it and if it helps you, go through it, list the ages and memorise them like that. Do whatever makes it easy for you. Remember, there's not just one version of each medicine out there. An example of this is Mebendazole, which is an anthelmintic licensed OTC for the treatment of threadworm. Imagine you've got a mother arriving at your pharmacy with her two-year-old. Can they both buy and administer it over the counter? I'm going to let you pause for a second and have a look at the two resources, the BNF monograph and the SPC for Mabendazole. Did you see that it's licensed to be sold to children of two years and adults? Not only that, did you spot that the dose is exactly the same? If you had a patient at your counter, how would you counsel them? You tell them how to take it, to repeat another dose after two weeks if the mother suspects reinfection. This is quite a faff, as you're probably aware now that you've done it, to navigate through both of the resources. However, all of these minor ailments are covered in Paul Rutter's book, and if Threadworm isn't an advert enough for that book, I don't know what is. Very importantly, the GPHC want to know that you can identify red flags and know when and where to refer your patients who come to your pharmacies. Important red flags to be aware of include rapid unintended weight loss, which can be a sign of malignancy, 
fever associated with bacterial infection. It's also something to refer to the GP or even A&E if you suspect sepsis. How do you identify that? Confusion, reduced urine output, shallow rapid breathing and muscle pain. If you're stuck on spotting red flags, nice clinical knowledge summaries are excellent at highlighting them. Right at the start of the management sections of each topic. Don't skip them. Sorry, it's those three words again, but pharmacy students and pharmacists have a tendency to skip anything that doesn't look like drugs. Whilst we're on the subject of documents and information on over-the-counter medicines, remember the nature of our beautiful profession that it's always changing. There are medicines every year that have made the switch from POM to P. Have a look at section 3.2.5 in the MEP. You'll find the ones you need to watch out for, like some PPIs, amorophine, chloramphenicol eye ointment, tamsidocin, amongst others. A bit of a bizarre assumption pharmacist students and even some qualified pharmacists make the mistake of having is that because a medicine is available to buy over the counter, it's not clinically significant to the patient's symptoms or that you don't have to consider it when looking at the rest of the patient's medicines. Nice guidance includes OTC medicines. The BNF treatment summaries that we spoke of last week include them too. Remember, the community pharmacy is usually the first line of defence against whatever ails the patient. Remember, that doesn't mean that you only give the first line treatment and then that's it, refer to the GP. You can titrate patients up who have more severe hay fever with a couple of products, the OTC selection is wide and growing every day, so you have loads to choose from to give your patients personalised care. You've got to have faith in what you're recommending, not only that it gives them relief, but you've got to remember that it's got clinically significant interactions, adverse effects, and that these drugs are not exempt from that yellow card scheme either. For example, the use of intranasal corticosteroids, like beconase and stuff, they can cause an increase in intraocular pressure, so that's a bit of a bad news for patients with glaucoma, where the treatment intent is all about keeping that pressure down. Hospital and GP privileges, please take note of this. OTC and herbal medicines can actually cause admission into hospital, and these kind of medicines are way too overlooked in a patient's drug history. I used to actually work on an elective orthopaedic suite and I took a lot of drug histories from patients on, under my care. One of these patients had his repeat slip in the GP, uh, from the GP in his uh, medical notes so I made sure that I noted all these medicines down but then I went to speak to him and asked him if he took any other medicines. He said no. When I asked him if he bought any medicines over the counter he said oh just an aspirin, I thought I'd buy instead of getting it prescribed. Turns out this patient was actually taking low-dose aspirin for secondary prevention of cardio events, but he didn't even think to mention it just because it was something like 50p over the counter. As I've mentioned before, at discharge, if something's not mentioned in the patient's stay, which sometimes they're not, it's usually overlooked in the discharge summary. Therefore, the patient thinks that they don't have to take that medicine anymore because it's not mentioned anywhere. And it can confuse our colleagues in primary care, like pharmacists who are reviewing discharge letters for medication changes to update the repeat templates. The consequences of these actions, as I'm sure you're aware, 
can be disastrous and so damaging to patients. All of the counter meds have quite pronounced interactions as well, not only with each other, but there are some very testable P and POM interactions, like the fact that myconazole increases the anticoagulant effect of warfarin, and the interactions between antihistamines like cetirizine and MAOIs like phenylzine. You don't have to worry too much about remembering all of these or anything, so please don't panic. But do know that if there's been an MHRA alert, you should be aware of that interaction, specifically stuff like warfarin and myconazole gel, because it's been mentioned a few times in the recent years. That implies that unfortunately, this interaction is leading to patient harm. But once you start getting through some past paper questions in the future, you'll understand the ones that you absolutely need to know off the top of your head. This sort of thing for a more unfamiliar interaction will probably be part of the resource pack in the exam. So like I said a while ago, learn your way around a monograph and the SPC. Oh yes, OTC medicines have SPCs too. For some reason, a lot of people are surprised at that. If you're doing your pre-region community, just because you're considering the supply of an OTC medicine, please don't fall into that trap of thinking that the patient in front of you is not taking anything else. Remember all that training you went through, ask them if they're taking anything else they bought over the counter or if there are any pawns. Also, please do not underestimate the power of research. There's no harm in asking the patient just to give you a second whilst you investigate on the Stockley's or the SPC or the BNF. They'll be all the more grateful for the better care. This is also important for you guys working in GP practices too. Ask your patient what they've been on, if they've tried anything over the counter for what they're feeling. In this sort of area where fad diets and pills are everywhere, be vigilant in your consultations and see that they're not on anything that might cause them more harm than good. On to the MEP. But in the same kind of vein, section 3.2 contains all the numbers that you do need to learn. The maximum pack sizes and supply amounts over the counter, but it's much easier to do that if you get into the pharmacy, onto the shop floor, and get your hands on those medicines. That means you're going to have to counsel your patients on the use of these medicines, and you can start visualising the medicine boxes, which sounds like such a silly thing, but it's the whole point of the pre-regia to get the practice Away from the OTC bits in the MEP, let's start at the beginning, shall we? And can you feel those three words coming? Don't skip it! These sections look a bit abstract and sorry-like, but the change from the no-blame culture, which it was when I was a pre-reg, to a just culture has had a huge impact on practice, with healthcare professionals having to take accountability for more of their actions, which the former culture didn't enforce. You can be asked in the pre-reg exam about the problems with the no-blame culture or about principles of medicine optimization, about the stages of clinical checks, the different sources of information for a drug history. More importantly, I keep saying this, but I know that assessment drives learning were the magic three words for us during our farm. You're reading the MEP not only to pass the exam, but to shape your practice to the best it can be when you're qualified. 
look at the recommendations and the guidance set out in these first sections of the MEP, look at how professionalism is defined, how to show empathy, what to expect when you're doing your first drug history. It even covers attitude towards issues like polypharmacy and deprescribing. These are practical guidelines, meaning you must apply them to your practice if you're ever going to truly learn. After these, things the MEP is known for. Prescription requirements. What do you do when you receive a prescription? I hope the first thing you do is to check if it's legally complete. I call it my seven-step check. You check the name, the address of the patient, the age, if it's appropriate, date, signature, prescriber particulars, and the address. That way, if there's anything missing, you've avoided wasting any time and you can get the issue resolved straight away. Furthermore, if you're the one to spot the error, you'll be the one to sort it out with the prescriber. In that way, you'll be given the chance to build relationships with the prescribers around you. You can develop your confidence. You can develop your communication skills with the wider MDT. Don't forget the prescription requirements for an NHS script are exactly the same as those for a private script. The only difference is that the private prescription doesn't have to be written on that nice green standardized form that you get. You'll hear, they can be written on a napkin so many times, and it's actually true, but I am yet to see a prescription on a napkin, so if anyone does see one on their pharmacy travels, please get in touch, I'd be fascinated. Also, don't forget part two. Private prescriptions for Schedule 2 and 3 CDs need to be written on an FP10 PCD prescription. They are standardised. If you get one in your pharmacy, it's admittedly so exciting because they're not the most common and they look really cool. Have a look. There are some important sections on the Pregnancy Prevention Programme and Valparate and the Pregnancy Prevention Programme relating to isotretinoin. This stuff is essential to remember and don't worry, you will pick it up in practice. But try and get them learned. Like I said, I do recommend visiting the MEP every day so that by the time you sit the exam, it's second nature. For example, you might be asked about the maximum quantity of isotretinoin you can supply to a female patient who's on the PPP. You should know it's 30 days worth. You should also know that pregnancy testing for patients taking these medicines is extremely important because both of these classes of medicines are known for being highly teratogenic. You should also know that the prescriptions are valid for seven days if the patient is on the PPP and you'd be comforted to know that all of this is in the MEP starting from section 3.3.12. Don't worry, the more you visit these, the better you'll be at remembering them. Give a couple of months and you'll be teaching me. I might add at this point, you should be a bit fed up of me reiterating all this stuff because you should already be best mates with the MEP from your own farm. No doubt you had to sit a law and ethics exam towards the end of the final year, so technically you could be teaching me already. But of course, now we've got to start applying all that theory to practice, which can be the most difficult bit. But don't worry, we're all in this together. Wholesale dealing is probably the thing I struggled most with, and likewise for a lot of the people around me. It's not a huge section, but the GPHC understands it's a bit difficult to grasp all the concepts in it. So there's always a question or two in the exam. There's an MHRA statement in the section and a good list of persons who can be supplied with medicines in a wholesale deal. So that's easy to grasp. It's also got the legal requirements of what to do when you supply them and what to include in the POM register. 
Next, let's talk about veterinary prescriptions. I work in hospital now and I still dream of receiving a prescription for a pet just to use all that knowledge I accumulated as a pre-reg. That being said, these things are still to be learned. The legal requirements of a vet, vet prescription do make logical sense, to be honest. So have that mindset going in and you won't be so overwhelmed when you look through them. Try and test yourself on them regularly and look at the requirements of the labels as well. Naturally, a lot of knowledge leaves you after you qualify and you get more more specialised. But the thing that stayed with me weirdly after all these years is that every single record in pharmacy is kept for two years, except for vet prescriptions, which are kept for five years. I don't know why that stayed with me, but now hopefully it'll stay with you too. You're welcome. My favourite bit ever, control drugs. In terms of prescription requirements, basically everything is a legal requirement. Do you remember how long the scripts are valid for? Schedule 2, 3 and 4 control drugs are legally valid for 28 days after the appropriate date. Schedule 5s are valid for 6 months after their date. This section is the two E's. Excellent and essential. It's okay if it feels a little overwhelming right now because you're going to work with CDs no matter what sector you're in. So you're going to pick all of this up in time. Moving on, section 3.7 is full of newer information, but the things within it are extremely testable. Please learn the difference between herbal and homeopathic medicines, the difference in licensing for both of them. This is essential in this era where patients are subject to adverts and information overload regarding alternative medicine. So you as a pharmacist are the best person for them to speak to regarding them and they will approach you. The great expiry date debate. Everyone who's been a pre-reg pharmacist remembers asking, does that mean used by the end of the month or the beginning of the next month or the beginning of this month? I'll save you your breath. Used by or used before means that the product should be used before the end of the previous month. An expiry date means that the product should not be used after the end of the month stated. You are welcome. Last but not least, the appendices. Please do not skip them. The responsible pharmacist notice might seem a little silly, a little simple thing that you can afford to skip but don't be that pre-reg who's confused when they're presented with an incorrect notice in the question and can't identify the problem with it. You're going to be kicking yourself in that room. And the professional standards and code of conduct are vital, not only because you're going to be tested on applying them to practice in your exam, but because your whole practice should be based on them. These appendices will put things like professionalism, clinical decisions, person-centred care into practice and allows you to take them with you when you put in difficult situations and the appendix on consent is essential you need to understand capacity you need to understand the laws associated with it and the way you measure it gain consent for each infringement you make these are some of the easiest marks in the pre-reg exams so make sure you learn them and they're some of the most vital things that you're going to learn for the rest of your life
that's the segment on the MEP and OTC done. Now let's move on to the Q&A. The first question is, do evidences for performance standards need to be referenced? This is a great question and it is fantastic if you are referencing them, but have a word with your tutor. Most likely they don't need you to reference your evidences because it's more of a practical reflection than an academic one but it's much safer to ask them. You don't want to write 10 pieces in a format that your tutor isn't too happy with, only to have to change your whole writing style. Another question that I've got is quite specific and it's which drugs can cause constipation and which of these are we likely to see in practice? It's interesting and a bit surprising because drugs can cause constipation through so many mechanisms of action. Opioids are the most obvious and the most commonly seen, causing constipation by inhibiting gastric emptying. That means your body absorbs all the fluids from the lumen and that causes your stools to harden. It's also why tramadol is less constipating because it works partially like an opioid, but it's also got serotonergic activity. Antimuscarinics, antispasmodics, TCAs like amitriptyline also all cause constipation. Beta blockers and verapamil, they can cause it as well, but it's not as common. The ones that I mentioned are the most likely to be testable, but it's also likely that you'll see something that's not as common in practice. Always remember, it's good practice to reference the BNF, even after qualifying, especially after qualifying, to see that there's not a side effect that you've missed anywhere. Gastric side effects are common with loads of medicines, so in practice, if you're not 100% sure, there's no shame at all in having a look at the SPC and the BNF. I encourage it. I've been asked a lot about careers and progression. Hopefully, I'll be addressing that in the future, as will the wider primary healthcare development team. Just know that doubts about the future at this critical stage of your life are completely normal. But you're in one of the most dynamic, quickly evolving professions. There are so many routes you can go down with, that's GP practice, community pharmacy, hospital pharmacy in the NHS, private hospitals like me, academia, or a mixture of all of them. I feel like people are struggling with what seems like the sheer volume of stuff you have to learn for OTC. Aside from all the techniques I've just mentioned, what you can do immediately is register for the upcoming Primary Healthcare Development OTC Masterclass next week on the 30th of August. Not only that, but there's a myriad of learning opportunities that Primary Healthcare Development do offer. So you can actually pick the ones that are suited to your learning needs. Also, Remember, yeah. Also, remember to follow us on Instagram where there are regular quizzes on our story, join us on Telegram for exclusive case studies, polls, and all of us at Primary Healthcare Development are there as well, so we can give you the helping hand you need. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed the first ever student choice. Join me next week when I'll be talking about cardiology. See you next week. Bye.